Hello. Hello, Martin. Welcome to the Christina Talks podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Are you? Yeah, good, good, good. So as I'm you know, the top, very Friday vibe feels. That's great. <laughs> nice, right? A little bit of green going on, as always. My signature. Love that. Love that. <laughs> Excellent. So welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted. We finally, I think we booked it a couple of times and I had something and you had something. So I'm glad we're finally doing this. Oh, definitely. It's always great to talk to you. Bless you. So um, not. I'm kind of assuming not many of my listeners will know who you are or what you do. So give us, give us the introduction and then um, I, I want to dig into things a little bit. Yeah, of course, no problem. Um, so uh, my name is Martin Mason, pronouns he, him. Um, and by background, I am a talent and diversity and inclusion uh, specialist and professional. Um, so I've worked in kind of in-house, in corporate roles over the last 15, 16 years. He says with a sharp intake of breath. Um, can't believe where that time's gone. Um, and uh, following my time in-house, I really struggled to find vendors that could do what we needed uh, when I was kind of doing those jobs and so set up a business a few years ago primarily focused on supporting people with improving their talent and recruitment and diversity and inclusion practices and then have more recently launched a technology platform called talent mapper which is about trying to help people find their ideal jobs navigate their careers and try and remove some of the traditional barriers for access around diversity and inclusion Excellent. And this is obviously this is why I've got you on, because the whole kind of EDI subject has, I would say, over the last eight years has just expanded and expanded and expanded. And a lot of people will think of it. And if they're trying to put something into their business, they kind of go right gender first, then they go into ethnicity and then they kind of get stuck. And there's a couple of things that you're doing that I really want to to tap into because I think it's things that we don't get talked about. Before we get into that, though, we've talked many times, but I don't really know what the turning point was for you. Like, how does someone go? How does someone end up doing what you do now at the level you do it? Having started out, like, if we look at your LinkedIn, it was it was like you were a manager in Halfords. So there must have been something yeah. along the way that was like a pivotal moment where you just went enough. Yeah, it's funny actually. So I was just catching up with my old boss, uh, who was an area manager at Halfords uh, earlier earlier today, and kind of taking a trip down memory lane. And it, in a weird way, it feels like a million years ago, but also it doesn't at the same time. Um, so I think there was a few kind of steps along the journey. So I originally, so quick potted history is I originally started study law. Um, so I had kind of this burning need as a young person to want to make a difference in the world, figured that I would go and study law, I would be a family lawyer and help people navigate some of the challenges around that. While studying it, absolutely hated the subject because I realised that it was far, I kept getting steered down a route of actually the only way to make any money in this field or to actually get a job is to go into contract law or to be a, you know, an in-house legal professional, which have the absolute utmost respect for but it wasn't something that excited me and so took some time out I was working part-time at Halfords at the time and was fortunate enough um to kind of get spotted by somebody there who's who thought I'd got management potential and said right do you want to come and uh, be a deputy manager which then led to me getting my own store and so this was initially candidly kind of like a, a temporary solution until I'd figured out what I was going to do with my life 
um, ended up loving it and really enjoying the kind of interaction with people, developing people up within stores. Um, and even in the early days of Alfred, it was quite a very male dominated organization. There was very few women working in the organization. Um, and I was one of the first to kind of hire um, uh, women deputy managers into my store at the time that raised a few eyebrows, which, you know, we can look, kind of look now and think, well, that's ridiculous. Um, but it was, yeah, at the time, it kind of, for some some of my peers, it resulted in a sharp intake of breath. So it was kind of my first kind of trigger warning, I guess, where I was like, this is really strange. Why do people have such an aversion to people that are different? And then I was lucky enough to get a job in the learning and development team. So took a national role going around training up in different stores and absolutely kind of found my passion with it of loving, loved helping people, nurturing and developing people up. And then was given a few projects to help kind of develop people upon a national basis and as I was looking more into talent and DNI at that point I couldn't quite understand why we were struggling to attract and diversify our talent pool other than um kind of people's perception and uh I guess kind of the culture within the organization so kind of we me and some of my peers took a bit of a Trojan horse effect of going in trying to make some changes to the systems and the processes to enable them to attract and retain and develop a more diverse candidate pool um, and worked with an amazing HR team there at the time and then was given the same kind of opportunity at a company called Walsley. So went in there, very male-dominated organisation again, started to look at through learning and development and kind of education and things like apprenticeships, training programmes, how we could diversify the talent pool. Um, and it was never, I would love to say it was a really strategic choice at that point, but I think it was just, it, it felt like the right thing to do. And therefore we didn't talk about it openly as DNI at that point. It was more, we're just, you know, looking for the right people to help grow the business. It wasn't probably until my body shop days where I really understood it under the category of DNI. Um, and it became a more formal part of my role where I was lucky enough to work for a very progressive company with a really good board who got the agenda and really wanted to make a difference in the world and so we're, we're very open and humble and kind of said look we really don't know loads about dni but we want to learn and we want to create a culture that is great for people um, and allowed me and my team to start to do work in that space to establish an actual formal DNI strategy to do really good initiatives, but also to make some of the systemic changes around the talent piece in that business so that it wasn't a tokenistic kind of DNI activity, but they fundamentally wanted to be a good place for people. Um, and then through my conversations there, um, I remember getting a, a senior mentor who said to me, I was kind of downloading at them one day about how poor the um, people I'd come across were in this space of actually do it rather than just talking about it and I actually doing something with it. And he then said to me, well, rather than kind of moan about it, why don't you go and do something about it? And so I thought, well, that's very fair. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. There's loads I want to pick up on in there. Um, I love, you use the word tokenistic. I see so much of that, so much of, from a marketing perspective people jumping on bandwagons and it's pride month let's paint everything rainbow and and it is it frustrates me it absolutely frustrates me but what are what's the difference between a, a strategy that is tokenistic and one that is intentional 
I think what you just said, the key word for me around that is intent, but the other part of it is being able to do something that's more strategic and is output focused rather than um, a, like a one hit wonder. So if we take an example like the one you just used there, so I, I see this a lot with organizations that are, um, they kind of almost recognize now societally they need to do something. So they'll do a big splash for Pride Month and then but if you speak to LGBT people working in their business, the experience isn't all that great. They don't do anything to support their people. It's more about, look, we want to be seen to be a great brand. Um, but even that in itself, they're the ones that are trying in this space that are, you know, are at the foothills, don't really know where to start. At least the good, well-intended people are then saying, okay, well, we know this is our first interaction. We're going to start with Pride Month. But what we want to do is partner with an organization that's making a difference to that community, somebody like Stonewall or Mermaids, and say, for, I don't know, a 5% of whatever we sell this month goes towards that charity. That's the difference between it being tokenistic and they're doing it for the right reasons to benefit that community. Um, and I think the other part of it is where you see businesses that just do a celebration for Pride Month, International Women's Day, et cetera, but don't do anything to try and either educate their people or put the right mechanisms in place for people that are of different demographics to progress or succeed in their business. That's where it becomes tokenistic. I remember International Women's Day, I was I was at an event and I'd got a bee in my bonnet because I quite, oh no, it was the day after, I think. And I put this video out basically saying, it's International Women's Day, I'm doing nothing about it. Because although, yes, I'm a woman and I'm a leader of business and I perhaps should, um, I'm constantly promoting it. I don't need a day to do this. And actually, people that are jumping on, posting their videos, posting photos of their mum just for this one day, it's like, I don't get it. Do, like, what are you doing every day? And someone said to me, the thing is, if it creates awareness, that's good enough. And I just kind of thought, I'm a marketer. I'm all about creating awareness, but I'm like, no, it's not good enough. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, we're probably not too dissimilar on that. I think for me, there's a fine balance with it of do, the businesses that just do the right. We're only going to talk about this on that day and we'll make a big PR splash about it. That's the bit that kind of gets stuck in my craw a bit more. I think what is helpful and where i have seen some businesses have the ones that are genuinely doing some good work in this space where they are doing um more meaningful work it does put more of a spotlight on different communities at different points during the year and kind of if it's a bit like it's probably a really terrible analogy but i know people will get it if you think about like your, your um your health and safety training or your compliance training that organizations go through it's anniversary training they go through it every year um you know things like gdpr training it's stuff that they you would hope that these these <laughs> people are, are doing and being compliant through the year but it's that kind of reminder of why it's important i think taking a similar approach to some of these um key points in the year reminding people about why it's important as a refresher and but then with the hope that they continue with the momentum and stuff during the year that's where i think it's not terrible mm, yeah so the thing I really want to dig into is this idea of, um, so we've had plenty of conversations over the however many years it is we've known each other, okay? But the, the, the terms internal mobility and social mobility, I feel 
have only, they're still not even mainstream. They're not. I, I, I want to say they are. They're not. I'm just starting to see them more. When when we very first started talking, it was like, okay, I like I know what social means and I know what mobility means, but as a phrase, what does that actually? And I do think these the the, the two the two things. You're the only person in my network. Someone's probably going to contact me saying, uh, "Christina, have you not been listening?" But when I like when I think of these things, I think of you. It, I feel like you're one voice in a sea of voices on this stuff. So this is this is what I really want to dig into. So what do they mean? Like, it, it, explain it to the world. Yeah. Uh, so this has been quite helpful, actually. So I'll, I'll be honest. I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of this stuff I've kind of been doing, I guess, intuitively over the years in, in Corpus Christi, it was just like it was an obvious thing to do, right? It's like, well, why would you not want diversity in your teams why would you not want people to do well and progress and achieve great stuff because if they do well your business does well so there's this kind of like inherent thing there for me but I think what these terms that are now starting to become more well known early days but get in there is it starting to articulate what what the whole concept of equity means really so if we start with social mobility social mobility is about regardless of your background from a um i guess in in previous times we would have called it a class structure but now more your socioeconomic status if you come from a lower socioeconomic background so you might have had parents that didn't have a lot of money or you might not, you might have had parents you might have been in um uh kind of i've met people that have been in foster care who've grown up in um all kinds of different scenarios who've had more hurdles than than other people to overcome in order to be successful it's about how do you remove some of those unnecessary hurdles or barriers to entry for people so um a good example of this that i've seen is in a lot of recruitment processes where they're geared towards people that are atypical so if you are neurodiverse if you've got um dyslexia dyspraxia for example actually navigating your way through those processes is quite tricky um because um you know often on these little application forms the text is quite small it can be on different color backgrounds it's not that easy to access and so it's one extra layer that someone has to go through in order to get through that process that someone else doesn't social mobility is the same it's about how do you create a system where regardless of your background you can achieve and be successful and progress through an organization or in society and how do it's like I said, it, it's not in the mainstream because people don't realize that they need to take some responsibility to fix this but how yeah. how do they do that how can they do that so one of the main areas is I've seen a lot of businesses over the years that will have things like grad programs where they'll say must have a 2-1 degree from a Russell Group University like an Oxford or a Cambridge. Um, and then when you ask them, well, what, why is it that in order to do this entry level role in your business, why does somebody need a 2-1 from that academic institution? And I say, oh, because that, that shows that they're the best. And it's like, okay, but if you look at the people that get into those universities, that's not representative of society. And if you're from a, you know, there's tons of research out there that shows if you're from a lower socioeconomic background, you probably weren't even aware to be able to apply to some of these Russell Group universities or to be able to navigate the process to even get an application in, let alone 
go to that university plus then the costs for some of these um education programs can be so prohibitive for people from low-income backgrounds that already it's an extra barrier that they can't attain um and so taking that out of the process to say actually what do you if you need somebody to be a store manager in your business or um an entry-level finance person do they really need a two-one in um physics to do that no um and so being a, being able to focus on okay what do you want them to do what are the skills required in order to achieve that and assessing against that instead of just putting these kind of you know arbitrary almost have a two one uh degree in your process is one of the mechanisms that will stop or help us to achieve social mobility and stop that inequity Obviously, asking questions about people's backgrounds is going to be tricky, though, isn't it? To like, if, if, when you take that filter away, to to know that you're giving the opportunities you're creating are reaching people across the spectrum. So, how? I mean, there must have been studies in terms of like the best questions to ask or how to. Oh, for sure. Information. But what I find really interesting, even now, in so many other areas of our lives, we focus on outputs, like what is it we want to achieve? And yet I see so many kind of talent and recruitment processes that don't do that. So when you ever, whenever I've stopped and asked a hiring manager or a leader in their tracks and say, right, forget everything that you currently know about recruitment, what would your dream candidate look like in that role? So we've gone through the process, we've placed this person, what would they be doing for you? What would success look like? Always focusing on the outputs. And usually you then get this shopping list of, you know, they must be great at marketing or they must be great at X. And so you get this list of skills or outputs. And then I would always try and build the recruitment backwards from there to say, okay, well, how do we then identify if somebody can do these? Either they've got the skills today or the abilities to do this. If you focus on that in the process and nothing else, actually, it doesn't really matter about any other characteristics that they've got. Um, because we just need to know, can this person do that job? Have they got the capability to do it? Um, and that's the bit that I find quite odd. When you when you say to them, well, why do we capture all these other stages or processes in the recruitment in the recruitment stages? Because we don't need them. There's so many studies out there that prove that actually the traditional recruitment process does not determine whether someone can actually perform in a role or not. It's just pure luck <laughs> whether they do actually deliver what they said they would when you've got them in the business how, how are people measuring this stuff uh, measuring social mobility yeah um so for some organizations that i've come across they are tracking it once they've got people inside the organization so they can ask um there are some good questions that you can ask around um so you know uh their level of academic attainment um whether their um households had uh, parents from certain kind of economic backgrounds and things like that and uh, doing it in a way that's optional for people to self-disclose if they want to and that's highlighted for a lot of organizations that we've come across that actually most of their population come from quite a privileged background and that they've not tapped into different talent pools um so that in itself can be quite insightful but i guess the best way to track it is post the recruitment stage but when you've got yeah people in your organization to see if if they are which which areas they're coming from in life so when you come across those companies that are showing to have been you know they've got a team that have i want to say come from privilege that sounds like the wrong phrase but we'll, we'll stick with it for now what 
what kind of initiatives are they then putting in to like is it is it is it about awareness campaigns that are targeted at, at people you know with from families with lower incomes is it about going into schools is it yeah it's a good question i think it's it's not necessarily about um positive discrimination necessarily it's more about looking at where they're sourcing their talent from today and expanding the reach of that so it's not we're not saying don't ever take people that are from you know red brick universities what we're saying is it's an and rather than an or so if you are only exclusively advertising through so that you know one organization that i know historically they would go to an outsource provider they would find the talent for them or they would recruit for their graduate program these people were historically only looking at those four or five universities and nowhere else and if you broaden the reach and say well actually we're going to talk to 50 universities and colleges and schools and 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 <laughs> and then get a wider funnel and funnel that down actually they will then start to get a cross representation of society rather than just a certain type of people from a certain type of background and that's the better way to do it the more you can do to make it representative of society rather than just focusing on one talent pool the more likely you are to get a diverse workforce and then by definition a higher performing one yeah does it so let's say businesses achieve that does it then create issues in terms of equity and inclusion within the organization is it it's kind of like we, we've dealt with one we've done with that dealt with one issue and now we've yeah, got yeah. like a fresh one to deal with yes so um we see that typically people go through like different stages of maturity with this so the first pain point is they've got an organization today that is arguably inclusive because loads of people are the same but not diverse then they manage to fix their talent process and pools they start to get diverse candidates come in then it starts to change the culture because people are different they're trying to navigate around each other and understand each other and so there's this kind of forming stage that they go through where everyone's trying to suss each other out there's a bit of discord um because people have brought different perspectives they've got different thoughts different ideas when historically in a meeting they might have been sat there and someone will suggest an idea five people around the table all violently agree with them because they're all of one mind when you add difference in, it's going to create debate and discussion. So it does sometimes then create discord, but you tend to find that the businesses that stick with it and move past that discord period, learn about each other and then find ways of um, professionally encouraging that debate, discussion, ideas. They're the ones that go on to really perform. But what sort of strategies have you seen people putting in for that? I think a big part of that comes down to education. It's about seeking to understand difference so um, understanding where the other people are coming from and being inquisitive curious open-minded to different ideas and suggestions rather than I guess doing what we've always done mm. so if I think about my previous teams I would actively seek out people that were quite different to me in their thought process because I wanted somebody that was going to challenge me did I always love it no there were days where I'd go home and be like oh that was hard work in that conversation but the end product was so much better and more powerful than surrounding myself with people that would just violently agree and go yeah that's a great idea Martin do that and then we'd wonder why it missed the mark with with the end user there's a massive uh, there's a massive 
lesson to be learned in understanding other people isn't it not in a in a one-to-one context not even in a group context there's there's someone that I um, do some work with and they're, they're a million miles an hour with the ideas and making decisions and I have to be the one that it's like everyone comes to me to be the one to say to them mm, don't think that's right and we, we've got this great way of communicating now where if, if I'm if I'm showing an adverse opinion, they're like, okay, I think we need to talk about this later. It's like, okay, we've got 48 hours for everyone to process and then we can come back and we can deal with it. But it, it is, that. especially when conflicts arise, I think it is, this is where sometimes, sometimes things can go out the window because you've got, sometimes it's a mindset shift as well, right? Of course it is, yeah. And so this is why you see all the time where um, now that DNI has become far more of a, a prevalent topic and um, almost a profession now in its own right, which it wouldn't have historically been, I don't think, not in the same way anyway that it is today, um, there's people constantly posting about the fact that actually you're going to have to get uncomfortable to learn these things or um, try new stuff. That it, It's very true, you are. It, you know, the only way we learn is through um you know experiencing things that are different we, we need different information than we've got today in order to learn um it's the only way we grow so and we all know that growth um especially if it's um accelerated is not always that comfortable <laughs> it can be deeply uncomfortable learning by mistake and trying things and failing but it's the it's the best way to to, to grow and learn okay so let's chat about inclusion so this is again a vast topic and I know you've worked with a lot of quite big brands on how they can put put things in place to create more inclusivity in their business so what sort of like what do you think the the measurement points should be like you know how do we know we've really got an inclusive culture and what strategies have you seen that actually really bloody work yeah, it's a good, very good question. So there's a couple of bits in there. I think it's not, it's not one measure. There are, and it really depends on the business. So you know, a charity business, for example, is different than a, um, I guess a, a corporate business with a, an EBITDA target. Although yes, there, there's still a financial element in there somewhere. The the mission and the strategy and the bit and the purpose of that business mean that the measures are going to be slightly different. But if we take you know, a typical FTSE 100 type business in, in the UK or a medium-sized company, um, more often than not, they will be accountable to their boards, to shareholders. There will be, on top of that, they've got their end customer, whomever that is. So there's a societal pressure out there now and people are becoming far less tolerant of um, inequity and uh, lack of inclusion and, and expect more. Um, and we've even seen through... You know, we've now got brands being, for all the right reasons, being taken to task on social media and in the press over their practices and the way that they treat people. So if we reverse engineer that, there are some good health metrics there of, um, you know, are are you delivering what you need to for your shareholders in terms of all your end user um from a fiscal point of view, is your customer having their needs met? You know, are you able to service the customer group in which you serve? Um and building the strategy around that rather than um, we're just going to focus on demographic X this week. And I think where the businesses that I've seen have really good success with that is they've started with the end goal in mind and go, right, okay, we're really clear that we are a business that provides services to this group. 
Um, and more often than not, it is quite a diverse section of society. Therefore, if we work that back, who are the people that are building our product? Do they understand this group? And therefore, do we need to bring people in with different perspectives to achieve that? I think when you start to do that type of education and build the strategy out in that way, people's mindset's quite different than just putting them through a traditional training program of, oh, let's talk about unconscious bias, because people can't relate that subject to how how is it that I do this in my day job? And I think when you can turn around to a, a product manager and say, okay, so who are you building this product for? Where are you getting your information from? Who are your trusted advisors around you that give that information? We've done that as an activity with people. You can see them go, oh yeah, the six people that I spoke to are almost identical and characteristic to me. So there's no diversity in, in that perspective. I need to change that. Then it becomes more of a way of operating rather than a, um, oh, I need to go and do my unconscious bias training and then refresh it in 12 months time. What I really love about that, because my next question was going to be, like, how can smaller businesses do the same? But that, I mean, that's the ultimate blueprint right there. It's It's no different, is it? No, exactly. And, you know, it starts with you as an individual. We, um, one of the exercises that we used to do on our, or still do actually for certain uh, training programs is we get people to think about what we call their circle of trust. So who are the people in their immediate circle? Who are your trusted advisors on the big stuff? So if you're going to make an important decision about recruitment, your business, something life-changing, who do you go to uh, outside of your kind of immediate family or spouse or, uh, or close friend. And normally you've got this kind of group of trusted advisors. And more often than not, uh, data shows that these people are quite similar because we're, we're pack animals as, as human beings. We tend to gravitate towards people that are a bit like us because it makes us feel psychologically safe. So being proactive and um, intentional about that, I will go and speak to people that I know have got very different thought processes to me, particularly when I'm making decisions about my business to say, okay, I've been having these thoughts. What do you think? And the conversations are so much richer when you come out of that than just chatting to, you know, your best friend or your other half and, um, you know, getting it. Oh yeah, that sounds great. Because <laughs> this is the thing when it's someone closer to you, they, they see, they have a different filter. Because there's like a protective filter there as well. It's um, it's really interesting because there's a, a piece of content that's going out today, actually. And when I saw it, I was a little bit like, oh, oh. And it's it's a really good piece of content, but I just, you know, sometimes you look at something the first time, you're like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And then the fourth time you look at it, you start to see potential issues and I'm like, oh, if I just am I just overthinking this, or am I right? So I've sent it. I sent it out last night to probably five, six different people that know me in different contexts, in different ways, and um, yeah, to get their opinions before I decided whether to put the brakes on it or not. And I, and I haven't put the brakes on it. I've just let it out there. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Whether I've just shot myself in the foot or not. But it is, it's, you know, I didn't send it to my mum because my mum would be like, no, take it down. Like, why would you want people to know that about you? And it's, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's quite interesting. You've, you've got to go to the right advisors. 100%. And even in those scenarios, you know, as human beings, we will mess stuff up. You know, that is inevitable. <laughs> if you try stuff and you fail, I view that as a learning experience, however painful it is. It only becomes negligence when you keep making the same mistake time and time again. <laughs> so, you know, 
the, the only way we're going to innovate is by trying new stuff, mm-hmm. right, and pushing boundaries and, and seeing what happens. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and say we've got everything right over the last, you know, however many years, but we've we've given it a good go. <laughs> Attitudes to all this stuff. So it was a, if I were to generalise, when the whole, you know, DNI first of all, it was kind of fluffy. That was the attitude towards it. It's a fluffy thing. Then it became really important and a lot of people were um, jumping on the bandwagon, talking about it, but maybe not actually putting their hand in their pocket and doing something with it. So from your perspective right now, how does that look? And are people, see, like, are people seeing EDI, you know, are they, are they seeing this stuff as a cost or an investment? I think the answer to that is both. So if I think about the customers we've worked with over the years, there'll be some that will 100% do this because it's something they've been instructed to do. Mandated. Yeah. So there'll be somebody somewhere that's gone, oh, we should probably do this to keep ourselves off the front cover of the tabloids. Um, And then there's another group of people that are doing it for the right reasons and are investing year on year. And they're the people that I love having the conversations with because they'll say, look, we've done this, we've measured it, we know this bit works, we're going to try this stuff now, we're speaking to our people, we're con- we're seeing it as it's going to be a constantly evolving thing that's going to change rather than, a, oh, well, we've we've rolled some training out, we've ticked the box and now we can forget about it for five, five to ten years. Um, yeah, d- definitely two different camps of people, I would say. The, 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 but the smart businesses are the ones that are seeing it as a, a long-term investment because if you can outthink your competition and innovate, then you'll, you know, your business is sustainable. The ones that don't do that are, are, won't, won't exist in 10 years' time. This is in the impact of it all is it impacts profitability It because it enhances employee engagement, it contributes to employer brand. It, um, I mean, I I've, I've, was reading something a couple of weeks ago about impact on pro- productivity and you just think really but it, it's crazy yeah absolutely i mean the 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 again, again it all comes back to learning right if you've got people around you that are going to keep you learning and keep you fresh in your thinking and your ways of working you're you've got more chance of improving your productivity it's the whole you know you always did what you always did you'll always get what you always got so you've got to bring in variety in order to to achieve that where where do you think things are going like what are the what are the trends that you're seeing now within this space and and where do you think it's going what what do you think's coming next i think that the emerging trends that we're seeing businesses um try to understand more i would say there's a lot more people waking up to neurodiversity and realizing that the majority of us are on a a spectrum around our um our our, our thinking and the you know our cognitive abilities um and tapping into that and making sure that their ways of working aren't only designed for one school of thought um that's definitely becoming more more topical i would say social mobility is another area that i think people are waking up to to realize that you know we've had a war for talent now for multiple years it's not going anywhere anytime soon 
the repeatable jobs over the next 10 years, anything that can be, you know, process driven or automated will probably get replaced by AI. We know that, but you'll always have a need for people and uh, connection and emotional intelligence and thinking that a machine can't do. And so tapping into pools of people that have skills or abilities um, will will always be a, a need. We know that there's more that there's less people than there are kind of um, jobs in 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 multiple areas now. So being able to diversify and attract different talent in to fill those vacancies is going to become key. So and social mobility is one of the big mechanisms to achieve that. Excellent. Martin, uh, I have one final thing. Okay. Now, Talent Mapper. Yes. So I said, I've known you for a few years. I've known you involved in a couple of different projects. and um, But Talent Mapper is relatively new. Yeah. And um, I just, because there are so, there's like, there are, there's strategies. And I think we hear about the strategies, but we don't necessarily hear about the tools. So, um, and I, I'm putting you on the spot because this, this isn't like a plug for Talent Mapper, but I am genuinely interested in like what it's able to do because this is, this isn't, I mean, yes, it's looking at part of your recruitment process, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's also looking at what's in your business already. Exactly that. So one of the challenges I faced when I was in-house myself was trying to get a handle on people like who who we'd actually got working in the business finding it almost like a database of all of the people with all of their talents and skills so we could make the most of of all these great people that were working with us and the amount of times that you'd get somebody ask you um oh i need somebody that can support me with this project that have got these skills and traditionally it's the people that are in your periphery that you know about that you can go oh yeah i know that you know sandra who i work with has got those skills um Whereas the beauty of the of the product that we've built is it enables you to get a, a comprehensive database on all of your people. So you can then say, right, I need somebody with Photoshop skills or marketing or speaks Italian. You can search, find them, and then invite them to opportunities. For the individual, it's about creating more equity in the process of career progression. So making the whole career progress uh, or career pathways more transparent. So showing you what skills you need to do to achieve a certain job, help people work towards that and close the skills gap um, and also get the right support through projects or mentoring um, uh, through through the platform as well so they can tap into others in the business that have got skills that they need so they can develop and and achieve what they want to achieve I love that you included mentoring there because I feel that there's there's not enough of that that especially in corporate organizations there isn't that um focus on mentorship that that I believe there should be no, I agree. And I think what's also really interesting is, and I've come across this a lot, particularly in, in our profession, is you'll mention things like mentoring and people assume it's this big, huge project or program that, you know, they've got to set up and they're therefore it terrifies them and they don't do it. I think when you, half the time we don't even talk about it as mentoring to some of the people we're working with, or just say it's about finding somebody that's got the skills that you need to, to share that information with you or teach you. And all of a sudden it takes the scariness out of it. It's like, well, I know you're really great at marketing, so we can have a chat and I'll learn from you about how to do that. That That's all it starts with. This is it. It's a regular coffee. 
Yeah. It can be as simple as a regular coffee. It doesn't need to be this kind of overcomplicated process. No, agreed. So the more we can, for me, it's just about making all of that stuff as accessible as possible to people. And that for me is where you achieve kind of true inclusion and equity, because the more accessible it is, the fairer it is. Everyone's got a fighting chance of of doing well then. Wonderful. Um, just before we wrap this up, Martin, there's a lot of businesses out there, and I'm thinking like the smaller businesses now, the less than 10, less than 10 people in your business. To be honest, I think if, if it's just one person in your business, it's like the perfect time to start thinking about this stuff. So like if there was, if everything else was shut off from you and you could only have one message to deliver, one kind of like, this is what you need to do, what, what would that one thing be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say stay, I'm going to paraphrase that one, but I would say stay curious and educated. That would be the thing. The more that you can keep your mind open and learn, the better it will be. Excellent. I love that. Stay curious. (laughs) That's amazing. Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, We've... Do you know, I've written some notes, some things I wanted to cover. We've covered that and way more. Um, Like I said, this thing of sort of social mobility, I think people should really start to pay attention to that because it is literally, there's opportunities on your doorstep to make a difference. Um, Obviously, people can come and find you on, I'm thinking LinkedIn is probably the best place for them to. Yep. So catch catch me on LinkedIn um, is probably the best way to connect. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Martin. Thanks, Christina.